This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Now, live and direct from the press box at Old Comiskey Park, it's time for When Football Was Football. Let's join your host, Joe Ziemba, with another forgotten tale from Chicago's pro football history. Let's go! Thank you, as always, for that warm introduction, and welcome to another episode of When Football Was Football here on the Sports History Network. Once again, our program will originate from the old, dusty press box at Old Comiskey Park in Chicago, where 75 years ago this month, a monumental football game was played that is always remembered by the folks who follow the Cardinals. Back then, of course, the team was known as the Chicago Cardinals, the arch-rivals of the Chicago Bears on the north side of the city. And that game on December 28, 1947, was between the Cardinals and the Philadelphia Eagles for the NFL Championship. The Cardinals won that game 28-21 on a frozen field right in front of us in Comiskey Park and enabled the Cardinals to claim the 1947 NFL Championship. Well, that was one to remember because the Cardinals still have not won another title in those 75 years. But that game, and I guess the lack of success since then, prompted me to put together a book that includes that 1947 game. So the purpose of our program tonight will be twofold. Love to give you a preview of the book called Bears vs. Cardinals, the NFL's oldest rivalry, as well as give you a hint or a preview of what's coming up here on the Sports History Network for When Football Was Football. Throughout the month of December, we're going to pick out a few of the key games and other events that took place on a specific day in December of 1947, prior to that wonderful game when the Cardinals were able to finally grab the NFL title back in 47. First of all, let's tackle the book which was published recently by McFarland Press. And we're very grateful to those good folks for taking a chance on this publication. I actually started working on the book in 2010, set it aside for a while, did another book on high school football, and then returned to it. And one of the reasons for that was the, I guess, the release of great, great documents by the Dutch Sternemann family, which now reside at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. For those who don't know, Dutch Sternemann was the partner of George Hallis for the first 10 years or so of the National Football League. And Dutch, he he maintained all the financial records from the Bears in those early days, as well as personal correspondence and other documents. And it really helped me to get started on working on the book, since you always look for something that hasn't been published before, something new in the world of football history. And the Sternemann collection certainly gave me that opportunity and the wonderful, wonderful documents that are included in that. So with the previous research I had done for my earliest book on the Cardinals called When Football Was Football, the Chicago Cardinals and the Birth of the NFL, I decided to go ahead and start writing about the Bears and the Cardinals and their longest rivalry. One of the things that drives me nuts is when the Bears and the Packers play, and it's, it is a long rivalry, but it's not the oldest. That's the Bears and the Cardinals, which kicked off first in 1920. The Packers didn't join the league until 1921. 
And that gave me another idea of maybe to take the opportunity to correct some history, both for the Bears and the Cardinals. Usually we rely as historians and researchers on documents from the time. For example, George Hellas wrote his autobiography and released it about 50 years after a lot of the events occurred. And then for the Cardinals, we didn't have a whole lot of information because, like the Bears, the Cardinals' records, many of them were lost in fires sometime in the last few decades. So you almost have to start from scratch when researching the history of these two teams. So I wanted to give some recognition also to Chris O'Brien, who basically was the founder of the Cardinals. He's really a forgotten man in in the National Football League, even though he was one of the founders back when the owners got together back in 1920 to start what is now known as the National Football League. I also wanted to plug in some holes on the background of George Hallis. So as we start the book, we we get background on both Chris O'Brien and George Hallis. I wanted to dig deeper into Hallis, what he did before he became a member of the Bears, so to speak. And there again wasn't much on his high school career at Crane Tech High School in Chicago nor on his University of Illinois athletic career, where he was an outstanding athlete. And we found out that Hallis really didn't play much football for the simple reason that he wasn't very big. But he did play a lot of indoor baseball, which looks a lot like 16-inch softball that's played in Chicago today. You have a rather large ball, the bats used were broomsticks, and it's played indoors. And this is well before basketball took over in this country as the primary winter sport. So he could play a game of indoor baseball in a large room within within a school or an auditorium. Uh, Similar rules to baseball except much shorter bases. And even though the ball is big and bulky, the pitcher could still throw as fast as he wanted to. So um, it was not, (laughs) sometimes you had a great pitcher, which Hallis was or his brother, you might have very low scores. Ellis really didn't play football until his senior year when he was a lineman on the lightweight football team, meaning they were probably under 150 pounds back then. So he took off a year from school after high school before he entered the University of Illinois. And there, as I mentioned, he became an outstanding athlete. You won't see anyone at a major college who can start and star in three major sports, which Ellis did in football basketball and baseball. His football career was restrained a bit by a broken jaw one year, a broken leg in another year, and of course freshmen were not eligible. So it wasn't until his senior year when he really started playing well and getting the action that he wanted at the University of Illinois. And then in January of 1918, Alice decided to join the Navy. He was stationed up at Great Lakes Naval Training Center, which actively recruited athletes in baseball and basketball and football and track to represent the base during World War I. And Hallis was part of a great team from the Great Lakes Training Center, which actually won the January 1st, 1919 Rose Bowl. And Hallis, finally finding some stardom, was the most valuable player in that game. He was playing along with Patty Driscoll, who was once at Northwestern, and uh, Jimmy Councilman, who would one day be the head coach of the, of the Chicago Cardinals. So it was a, a nice get-together for those athletes. They had great success playing major colleges, of course, in 1918, 
1918 season, that is, there was a flu going on. A lot of colleges didn't even have teams. There was a restriction of the crowd, so they didn't have any large amounts of people gathering with the flu. And also World War I was going on as well. Meanwhile in Chicago, Chris O'Brien was still with the team that he helped start with his brother and one of his friends back in 1899 as the Morgan Athletic Association. The team kept uh, together, most of the players, Lisey O'Brien, through the early years of the century, and Chris O'Brien never did stop playing. In about 1917 or 1918, the team incorporated, according to the records in the state of Illinois, as the Racing Cardinals Social and Athletic Club. And there's one of those names you just can't make up, a social club for a football team. Ellis got out of the service. He told his mother he was done with football. He got a job for $45 a week at an engineering firm in Chicago and until he got a call from a kind of a new professional team or semi-professional team in Hammond, Indiana that would pay him $100 a game to play for Hammond, which he did. So it was after that season, uh, Ellis decided that maybe he was done, done with football until he got a phone call early in 1920 from the representatives of the A.E. Staley Company in Decatur, Illinois to come down and coach the football team, recruit the team, see if he could make it stronger, as well as use his engineering skills working for the Staley Company. And of course, Alice jumped on that, went back on his promise to his mother, and went on one of the very first recruiting trips for the National Football League, bringing in numerous All-Americans who would have a job working in the plant. Alice was able to also get the owner to allow the team to practice football two hours a day. So they were getting paid uh, literally uh, for being at work in the Staley factory. The Cardinals on the north, on the south side of Chicago were also growing a little bit. And Chris O'Brien was adding players, and the most notable was Patty Driscoll, who we mentioned a moment ago. Patty in 1920 was the highest paid player in the league at $300 a game, I believe, when most of the players were still getting $25, maybe $10, or whatever they could get from passing the hat at the end of the game. But as we mentioned, Chris O'Brien and George Hallis were part of the original founding fathers of the NFL in 1920, and that year the NFL's oldest rivalry started. And the Cardinals and the Staley's, the Decatur Staley's, met in 1920. A year later, the Staley's were in Chicago, known as the Chicago Staley's. And part of uh, the information we uncovered for the book was, I'm not certain Hallis left Decatur voluntarily. Some new information came to light that showed that perhaps he was already thinking of leaving, and the Staley's certainly uh, might not have wanted to endure any more expenses for a football team traveling around the country. So Hallis left Decatur in 1921, and started quite a feud with the Cardinals by signing Patty Driscoll, who was under contract with the Cardinals, not only to a playing contract, but also as the part owner of the Bears. And these documents are found in the Illinois State Records. So uh, we have a, a copy of that contract we were able to work from in the book. And uh, the league did not like that, and Hallis got his hand slapped and was told to stay away uh, from recruiting people under contract to other teams, which was one of the reasons the league started was to get rid of the jumping of rosters from team to team as well as for one team to maybe raid another team's roster to get a good player. 
We also talk about the recruitment of Red Grange in 1925 and some of the fun stories that happened with the Bears being on tour. And Also, I wanted to dig up. There was, uh, you may have heard, in 1925, a bit of a controversy when the Cardinals played a couple of games in order to accumulate more wins over Pottsville in the standings. They had a couple of games that might have looked a little odd. In fact, in one of them, they played some high school players from Englewood High School in Chicago. So one of my goals there was to find out what happened to those players in years gone by, and one of them actually became a superstar in another sport. And after that, 1925, we move on through the Depression. Bronco Nagurski joins the league. We talk about the Sturman papers, which reveal the salaries paid by the Bears in those days, how much they paid someone to scout for them. Uh, how much they were making off of, for example, the Red Grange Tour, which is really fascinating information. So uh, after that, uh, we move into when the Monsters of the Midway took over the NFL in the early 40s. Uh, The war came, stories about the card pits in 1944 when teams merged. So the Cardinals and the Steelers merged and it might have been the worst team of all time. They were called the card pits. And eventually that was changed to the carpets by some of the media. And why not? Everyone walked all over them during their 0-10 season. But later in the decade, in 1947 and 48, through some shrewd drafts, returning war veterans, the Cardinals had the top team in the league, as we mentioned. In 1947, won the title. Then in 1948, they were probably even a little better with an 11-1 mark, although they returned to face the Eagles. This time the Eagles won during a snowstorm, 7-0. And through the, uh, the 50s, neither team really had a lot of success on the field. There was a constant bombardment of invectives and wild talk between the owners of the two teams throughout the 50s. And finally, the Cardinals moved to St. Louis in March of 60. And that came after the team attempted to move into Dyke Stadium at Northwestern University. And George Hallis pulled out an old agreement that said that the, it was called the Madison Street Agreement. That's an east-west street that runs through downtown Chicago and said the Cardinals would not play north of Madison Street and the Bears would not play south of it. So after that, I decided to go back and maybe today and for the next month, we're going to talk about that Cardinals last championship. For example, on December 7th, 1947, the Cardinals bounced back from a sluggish losing streak, a mini one that everyone thought would put them out of contention to bounce the Eagles 45 to 21 in front of over 34,000. And so in the next few weeks, in the month of December, we're going to go back and highlight some of these wonderful stories from that great month when the Cardinals won that last championship. We're going to honor the 75th anniversary of the Cardinals winning the NFL title, and we thank you, the listeners, for staying with us as we present some extra episodes of When Football Was Football here on the Sports History Network. Thank you. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.